This morning, I want to ask, before we begin, how many of us feel awkward in the silence? Just show of hands. Alone in the silence? I want to begin by transporting us to um, maybe back a couple of days. How many of you, on the first sign of fall, you, you had that temperature drop and you walked outside and you felt that brisk air and you went, finally? You know what I'm talking about? I'd like to begin by transporting us early this morning to, um, to that sunrise, early in the morning after the season's first good snow. If you need to close your eyes for this, that's fine. Maybe you're like me and you can see this in your mind's eye, but if you need to close your eyes just to imagine, then do it. If you're from further north, imagine this morning coming on the tail end of a severe sto- snowstorm, maybe a blizzard, a night where it was loud and there was a lot going on, but the next morning... You gaze out your door, your window, in the quiet majesty of that winter morning, seeing light glisten like diamonds off of ice-encasing branches or the ground covered in a blanket of untouched crystal-like particles. You feel the invitation to breathe deep, that brisk, refreshing morning air, and it just simply does something to the soul. It livens it. If you know what I'm talking about, raise your hand. Perhaps you can relate to the deafening silence only found and felt when you're the first to rise early in the morning in a household of young children. Before the sun has even decided to show itself, you breathe deep as your senses awaken to hypersensitive levels as the coffee brews, and you feel just how heavy your own steps are against each grain of wood in an effort not to wake the sleeping giant. The irony is they're toddlers. Anything to hold on to, to grasp, to keep this peace, this silence, hold on to it for just a moment longer. You see, these moments have a tendency to be cherished by us, and they seem to stand out in our mind because they're so foreign to our average routine. Our daily lives are full of noise, and typically loud noise, that even layers of depth have formed a cacophony of white noise in the backgrounds of our existence. We need silence, whether we know it or not. We crave it. And at the center of who we are, it resets our very person. It resets our souls. That's why it's prescribed as a spiritual discipline. It's because silence in and of itself is a discipline. It is distinct, something that is to be fought for. Because our demanding world will never simply offer it. Amen? It needs to be created intentionally by everyone here and regularly for us to develop any sort of inner depth whatsoever. I think it very important. How many of us have forgotten the flick of a light switch? How many of us have forgotten the plop of a raindrop on a glassy pond? How the wind howls as it whips through buildings downtown. All sounds that haven't disappeared, they're all still there. But they're easily forgotten and silenced amongst the drowning noise surrounding them, surrounding us. We are a hurried per- people, we're fast-paced, and often we become slave to the pace due to culture's unrelenting and, listen, unsilent demands on our lives. The spiritual disciplines are to be practiced to take back these moments and to awaken us again, to help us to live lives that are sensitive and aware. They are to transform us by the renewing of our minds and to no longer conform us to the mind-numbing pattern of this world. 
How many of you understand what I, what I mean when I say mind-numbing? You just walk through life seemingly doing whatever you can to survive and sometimes without even thinking about it, without even engaging your mind. You know what I'm talking about? You just do things. Ultimately, the world offers more than it can promise, more than it can give. It promises inspiration. It promises entertainment. But all these promises, they're empty. They don't do anything to the soul of who we are. I want to I begin today by reading a passage from a book by Mark Buchanan called Your Church is Too Safe. And this passage, quite honestly, I believe opens the, the understanding a little bit about the need for spiritual discipline as rule of life. It's as historian Daniel Borston documents a momentous shift that occurred in North America during the 19th century. We stopped calling people who went on trips travelers and started calling them tourists. Traveler literally means one who travails. He labors, he suffers, endures. A traveler or a travailer gets impregnated with a new and strange reality, grows huge and awkward trying to carry it, and finally, in agony, births something new and beautiful. To get there, he immerses himself in a culture. He learns the language and the customs, lives as the locals, imitates the dress, eats what is set before him. He takes risks, some are enormous. He makes sacrifices, some are extravagant. He has tight scrapes and narrow escapes. He has gone a long time. If he ever returns, he never returns without being altered forever. In a sense, he never really comes back. A tourist, not so. Tourist means literally one who goes in circles. He's just taking an exotic detour home. He's only passing through, sampling wares, acquiring souvenirs. He tastes more than eats what's put before him. He retreats each night to what's safe, what's familiar. He picks up a word here, a phrase there. But the language and the world, it's embedded in. It remains opaque and cryptic, vaguely menacing. He spectates and consumes. He returns to where he's come from with an album of photos, a few mementos, and a cheap hat. He's happy to be back. He declares as he clicks his heels together, there's no place like home. We've made a similar shift in the church. At some point, we stopped calling Christians disciples and started calling them believers. A disciple is one who follows and imitates Jesus. She loses her life in order to find it. She steeps in the language, in the culture of Christ, until his word and his world reshapes her, redefines her, changes inside out how she sees and thinks and dreams and finally lives. Whatever values she brought into his realm are reordered, oftentimes laid waste. And kingdom values replace them. Friends who knew her before scarcely recognize her now today. A believer, not so. She holds certain beliefs, but how deep down these go depends on the weather or on her mood. She can get defensive, sometimes bristling so, about her beliefs, but in her honest moments, she wonders why they've scant to make such a difference. She still feels alone, afraid, sad, self-protective, dissatisfied. She still wants what she's always wanted. She fears what she's always feared, and sometimes now even more so. Friends who knew her before find her pretty much the same. 
just angrier. You can't be a disciple without being a believer, but here's the rub. You can be a believer and never become a disciple. You can say all the right things, think all the right things, believe all the right things, and do all the right things, and still never follow and imitate Jesus. The kingdom of God is made up of travailers, but our churches are largely populated with tourists. The kingdom is full of disciples, but our churches are filled with believers. It's no wonder we often feel like we're just going in circles. You see, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said it like this of the spiritual disciplines. The quote is on the screen. We're so afraid of the silence that we chase ourselves from one event to the next in order not to have to spend a moment alone with ourselves, in order not to have to look at ourselves in the mirror. James said it like this, that when you look into the Word of God, it's like looking, it's like one looking in a mirror and never changing his appearance. That person who does that walks away and would be tossed by the, by the world and its culture like a wave tossed by the wind. But he expects that we should look into the perfect law and change. And we should not be afraid of silence because it's in the silence, in solitude, in places of solidarity, it's where we hear the voice of God. And in John 10, Jesus said, my sheep know my voice, right? So this morning, we're going to look at silence and solitude. And while each are disciplines in and of themselves, they are interdependent on one another. Solitude cannot be found apart from silence, but silence is seemingly without an endearing point, without solitude. So let's begin with silence. Jesus, uh, in Mark 6, had just welcomed back his disciples as he sent them out two by two to minister for the first time. And as they go out, they find something. They find that they are able to do the miraculous. They're able to cast out demons. They're able to raise the dead. They're able to heal the sick. And they come back... A little excited about that. (laughs) And to accurately help train them, Jesus immediately pulls them aside and he says, let's have lunch, just us, pulls them aside and they retreat. They come back excited that they have the ability to uh, have authority over death and illness in the dark. And he sees their tendency to get a little haughty in that. He's afraid their heads will explode from arrogance. We witness Jesus invite his disciples to come away and eat and rest with him. He offers them a practice of regularly coming back to him for physical and spiritual sustenance to refuel where they've just been depleted. How many of you know what it's like to feel depleted? Even if depleted is in those really great moments, like after a missionary trip, after an evangelistic outreach, you've gone and done the work of Jesus. This is an important picture for us because they come back all jazzed up, but Jesus wants them to know that this emotion is fleeting and will carry them only for a moment. In a moment, they'll feel their own void again. This is a good picture scripturally of the practice that we are discussing in these disciplines. Jesus fed the 5,000, really 20,000 if you look at the context, and after which they believe that in Jesus, the people believe they've found their coming king, their Messiah. In their minds... History's taught them that he'd come 
When he'd come on a Passover, he'd rule. He would overthrow all over authorities. He would be the king above all kings. And as the people of God, the chosen people of God, they'd reign with him. With this Messiah who can create food for them. They'll never have to work again. They'll never have to till the ground, never have to uh, comb the sea. They'll just be able to, like manna, as history has taught them, count on Jesus to bring food from heaven and they will just reign as he provides for them. So here's the thing, after Jesus feeds the 5,000, which is found in Mark 6 and uh, in Matthew 14, the people are really ready to throw a ticker tape parade for him. They're ready to put him on their, their shoulders, champion him into Jerusalem to overthrow Herod. But Jesus does something really intentional, and it stands out in the mind. When you consider the desire of those around him is to celebrate him. In Matthew 14, it records like this, verse 22, it says... Immediately, he made the disciples get into a boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. After dismissing the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. Well into the night, he was there alone. While his disciples are ready to continue trading secrets of the miraculous, they're ready to circle up and talk. And the people are ready to pat him on the back with those proverbial attaboys. Jesus sends them all away. They are all ready to sing his praises and they are all ready to make some immediate noise. But Jesus opts for the sacred of silence and he opts for the smile of his father alone. Can I ask you a question? How many of you have ever done something in ministry before? Maybe you were asked to speak. Maybe you were asked to stand up and give testimony, do something. You know what I'm talking about? Hands raised all across the room. How many of you had someone come up to you and say, hey, that was great, good job? And that was encouraging, and we should do that. That's what the church should do. There's nothing wrong with it. That's great. The problem becomes in the heart of the one who ministered, okay? How many of you know how intoxicated it is to get the proverbial attaboys? How many of you know how, just how, how good it feels to hear that was great, that was good, that was awesome? And we can try to sustain on that, but that is fleeting. It's only a moment, right? Much like we forget tragedy in America within a couple weeks, we forget that within a few moments. It may carry us a day or two. And he says we have to retreat to silence, and this is our first point. In Mark 6, Jesus pushes everyone away because Jesus chooses silence. Jesus chooses silence for himself. While the praise of man was right before him, I want us to get this picture down because it's really important. Jesus has just welcomed the disciples back. They have gone out. He calls them apostles for the first time in Mark 6. And, and he's telling them, as they're going, dude, I cast out a demon, I did this, and they're all doing it. And he's like, guys, boys, just, just chill. Just here, have some lunch. Listen to me. And they're like, but you don't understand. I did this. And, and he's like, you did all that in my name, through my power. Listen to me. How many of you recognize we highly overvalue talking and, and really undervalue listening? That, that James said, be quick to listen, slow to speak. And so in the silence, in the places where it was quiet, Jesus tries to build within them a sustenance because he himself is modeling it. In fact, in Luke 5, it says this, that Jesus 
Because the news had been spread even more about him, large crowds would come together to hear him and be healed of their sicknesses in verse 16 of Luke 5. Yet he often withdrew to deserted places and he prayed. How many of you remember it was the beginning of his ministry, he retreated into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days and 40 nights alone in the silent. And then it was at the end of his life, Praying drops of blood in Gethsemane in the garden before he would endure for us what would give us life alone by himself with the Father. Not my will, but yours be done. In moments throughout his ministry repeatedly, we see him retreat. And like here in Mark 6, he retreats to be alone. After meeting with his, his disciples, who he's going to leave the whole thing to, this is towards the end of his ministry, and they're going to wear the word apostle. That title. And then he feeds the 5,000, 20,000, because we didn't count women and men. I mean, sorry, women and children. And he feeds them because he has compassion on them. And then he sends them all away as they're ready to champion him and say, This is our king, let's overthrow Herod. Sends them all away to go be with the Father in Mark 6 by himself for the next 12 hours to pray. And he's going to pray what we read. Just a few weeks ago in John 17, the high priestly prayer, as he prays for us. And Jesus does this most of his time up there listening. He models discernment. How many of us can discern the voice and smile of God is more important than the, the attaboys of those around us? How many of us are trading the sustaining smile of God for the fleeting attaboys around us and we're asking them to sustain us. And that they, they promise something they can never give. It's fleeting. It will not hold us up. They, get, they promise more they can actually give. He models a need for the praise of the Father above all else. And as he was there alone, he models solidarity to quiet all other voices and hear the Father's alone. How many of you recognize there are a lot of voices vying for your attention? And there are a lot of voices that have a lot to say to you because we highly overvalue talking. There are not people that we pay to come into conferences like this. We don't, we don't host conferences and pay people to come and listen in front of us. But we will pay them to speak. Correct? Um, remember when we were going through our last series and we looked at how the ark was returned. Remember how, how uh, we saw that whole series kick off with Eli and a, a boy named Samuel in 1 Samuel. And in 1 Samuel 3, we hear God call Samuel for the first time. It's in the middle of the night, it's dark, it's silent, it's quiet. It's in the still and the darkest part of the evening that he hears a voice call his name. And it's the first time he's ever heard this voice. He's not had an interaction with God yet, so he immediately thinks it's his mentor, Eli. And there's been no widespread revelation that has been uh, happening amidst, amidst this time. Why? Because namely the sin of Eli's household. There's sin in the camp, Hophni and Phinehas. He gets up and he goes to Eli. Eli says, no, it wasn't me. You must have just heard something. He never runs to Hophni and Phinehas, who, to me, I would think they might be playing a trick on me, you know? It's like, Samuel, watch this, you know? Never goes to them, though. It's like he has this inner discernment that is deeper. He has a depth to him. He never goes to the ones that he recognizes are living in such a way that he shouldn't. He discerns a difference. 
He goes to Eli, his mentor. He goes to the wise. And Eli, after hearing it three times, goes, Oh my gosh, it is the Lord who's calling the boy. Here's what you need to do. Go sit. Be silent. I know you've never heard his voice, but I know his voice. I've heard it. Go and sit in the stillness of the night, in the quiet. And I desire for you to simply say one thing. The moment you hear his voice, call your name one more time. You simply say this. Please speak for your servant is listening. Please speak because there's no other voice that is distracting me right now. There's no other voice vying for my attention right now. Please speak because I desire to know what you desire of me. Please speak because I know it's what you have to say that will sustain me. And that word alone, that smile alone is what I need. How many of you know what I'm talking about? You're with me. And those are found in the silent places. Mark 6.30 says this. This is the moment I was talking about. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. He said to them, come away by yourselves to a remote place and rest for a while. For many people were coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. So they went away on a boat by themselves to a remote place. But many saw them leaving and recognized them. And they ran on foot from all the towns and arrived ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a large crowd and had compassion on them. He's about to feed the 5,000. Here's what I want to point out. As we discussed for before, Jesus chooses silence for himself, but he also chooses silence for his disciples as well. As they return from the ministry, he immediately encourages them to refuel by him retreating from the public. Let me say that again. Retreating from the public to be with him and him alone. In a moment, he's going to show them just how much they need him, how much they cannot do anything apart from him, but he models it by bringing them alone by themselves, and then he prescribes it for us as well. He says to us throughout the text, throughout all the Old Testament and the New, Psalm 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. How many of you have been brought face to face with the fact that God is God and you are not in the stillness? But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before Him. Habakkuk 2.20 In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength. Notice He does not say in the loud. Notice in Isaiah 30, He does not say in the places that are busy and loud. How many of you in the bumper, you noticed it got louder and louder and louder in the hustle and bustle of the city, and then it went to a silence? And how many of us, when it comes to a silence like that, after so much busyness, our immediate response is, this is awkward, I need to run. And Jesus prescribes, sit. How can we ever know what the Lord wants to say to us if we are never alone with Him and never quiet enough for Him to speak? Let me read on. Uh, in 40, verse 45 of Mark 6, it says this, After feeding the 5,000, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side, to Bethsaida. And while he dismissed the crowd, after he said goodbye to them, he went away to the mountain to pray. Well into the night, the boat was in the middle of the sea, and he was there alone on land. He saw them. Listen to this. He saw them. This word here literally means he saw, like with his naked eye, them, his disciples. He saw them straining 
at the oars because the wind was against them. Very early in the morning, he came toward them walking on the, on the sea and wanted to pass them by. When they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke with them and said, have courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Then he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased. They were completely astounded because they had not understood about the loaves. Instead, their hearts were hardened. Jesus chooses solitude. Um, The Life with God Bible defines solitude like this. Solitude is the creation of an open and empty space in our lives by purposely abstaining from interaction with other human beings so that freed from competing loyalties, we can be found by God. For 12 hours, Jesus retreats when everyone wants to celebrate him and all his disciples want to gather around and trade secrets. He goes away to be with the Father by himself for 12 hours because he knows it is in that moment he is praying and he's listening for the Father's response. We read John 17 and we know that's that's all we know that he prayed. I don't believe he just continued to repeat that prayer. Maybe he did, but I believe he spent most of his time listening and prayer is more about listening than it is talking. Have we learned this yet? How many of us are sitting in our, how many of us have ever prayed and said, I'm going to sit down for an hour just to pray, and within just a few minutes, like five minutes seems like an eternity. You go, really? I still have 55 minutes of this. You ever, like, this will explain to us just how hurried we are. Jesus chooses solitude. He chooses to be alone with the Father to let him speak. He makes his voice in time with the Father supreme, are we? He makes that first and foremost. Here's what I want to understand. Let me explain. Oftentimes, Jesus, when he teaches, there's more than one point. He was a very astute and very sophisticated rabbi. Rabbis taught with multiple teaching often. Jesus is doing the same here. There's two points I want to point out. Whether it be the prophets, whether it be the rabbis of his day, or Jesus himself, there are two points here that I'd like for us to grasp. Jesus is teaching a couple things. He's done it physically, and now he's doing it verbally. He'd like to point out what he's modeling for Jesus. One, or for his disciples, one is time with the Father is primary, as it should be for us. And number two, which is going to explain the first one, he doesn't hasten to leave this precious time with the Father due to the crisis of circumstance in His disciples' lives. He doesn't hasten His time with the Father because the lives around Him are in crisis. See, when we get alone with the Father, how many of you recognize you're going to remember everything you need to do that's yet to be undone? Every bill, every person you need to call, all those things will come to to pass. And in Jesus, in this text right here, this scenario, Jesus sends away his disciples under the care of Peter, who was called from these very shores to follow him in the first place. He sends them off into the boat in the dark of the night. Now, the only way that they would have traveled to the other side of Bethsaida would have been along the shore. Why? Because it's pitch black out. They don't have modern technology. And they would have learned that they would know where they were located by watching the moonlight bounce off the shore off the coastline. So they would have paddled near the shore so they would know just how far they'd gone and how far they had to go. It says the wind was so, so powerful that it blew them completely into the middle of the water. They do not where they were and all they saw was complete darkness around them. In the midst of them, in the midst of the night, as they're fighting for their lives, straying for lives amongst these waves. 
there's a massive storm that has counted cloud cover. Here's what I want to point out. Jesus should be about six miles from them functionally up on top of this mountain. It says in Mark 6 that Jesus saw them straining with his naked eye. It says that Jesus sees the sweat from their brow as they fight for their lives. And Peter knows this water better than anyone else out here. He's the best chance of survival in the boat. He knows the water, knows exactly what it is. This is not his first storm. And he should be able to get them across. Peter begins to flip out because he knows they're all getting so tired that they can't fight these waves anymore. It's like someone caught in an undercurrent. They're about to drown because they got no fight left. Peter's going, we're going to die. He's not saying it out loud in his side. He's going, we're going to die. We can't do this. Jesus sees that straining. And just at the point where they're pushed, where they cannot go anymore, where they're completely depleted. Okay. Remember, they've just come back going, dude, death is subject to us. Dark is subject to us. I cast out a demon and I healed the sick. It was amazing. They're high-fiving each other. Jesus goes, come alongside. Listen to me. Hear my voice. Take this food I have for you. You need to replenish yourself, but you can only replenish yourself with me. So he says, okay, look, I, I know that you want to talk to me and I know that you want to celebrate me. I need you all to leave because I need to be with the Father. I'm depleted. That's an example for the disciples to follow. And then he says, just so you know that you can do nothing apart from me, John 15, I'm going to let you go on the most, most familiar water. I'm going to let you do it in the most familiar way, and I'll watch you fight for your lives. Just so you know that when I come to you on the water, which is really illogical, by the way, when I come to you on the water in the midst of the darkness and all they see is this beam of light come walking to them on the water as if it's effortless. They go, it's a ghost. Of course, you'd be terrified. Who's seen this before? No one. But the greatest part is this. We talk all the time about how Peter begins to sink. See, before Peter began to sink, though, Peter had to walk. You see, Peter looks at his life and he goes, I can't save us. I can't do this. I can't even, I know this water and I know this craft. I can't do this. I just want to be with the only one that I know that can save us. And so beyond a logical doubt, beyond anything that makes sense, Peter goes, if it's you, tell me to come to you. Jesus goes, come. And Peter immediately over the side of the boat begins to walk on the water in the midst of a hurricane towards Jesus. Now, we can talk about the sinking, but hey, can we talk about the few steps he took on water? He did the miraculous because he was solely focused on the one who gave him the ability to do so. It's in his name alone, by his might and his power alone. The church is powerless without Jesus. We can do nothing apart from him. And so Peter, in a moment of fear like we do in humanity, turns and sees the waves are, are scary. The circumstances seem overwhelming, like they're going to overcome me. And he begins to sink. And Jesus grabs him and says, O ye of little doubt, of ye of little faith, why did you doubt? Here's why. You were doing what was impossible. 
You didn't have to stop. You just had to keep your focus on me and stop worrying about the circumstances. Church, it's only in those places of solitude that will navigate the waves of life. Those that might even seem overpowering or to our death. How many of you, like me, have felt the strangling of life's circumstances suffocate the air from you? He says, don't doubt me. Just place your faith where it should be accurately. Not in yourselves. You've never walked on water, but with me, all things are possible. The miraculous, the death, you know, the darkness, the illness, yeah, that's all subject to my name. And I'm sending you out in my name. Church, he's still sending us out in his name. But are we seeing the miraculous? Are we seeing those who were dead and walking around in life and who have been entrusted to you come and go, I want to know what it is that you have because there's a hope in you, there's a peace in you, there's a joy in you that just looks different and I'm drowning out here. How do you walk on water? How do you get around the waves of life? How do you navigate this stuff? How do you seemingly make it? You go, it's only by Jesus. And here's the thing. How many of you said that kind of like, kind of like you lied to the rest of the church when you said you were praying for them? I'm talking, praying for you. Talking about only by Jesus. Praise be. There wasn't anything, there was no amount of depth to that statement whatsoever. It was just a matter, it was just filling air. How many of you recognize your own tendency to talk a lot but say little? How many people know someone like that? Not you. I'm grateful that Jesus can see with, my naked, with his naked eye the smallest details of the sweat coming from my brow when I'm in the midst of waves. I'm grateful that Jesus cares about the details of my life, but he also cares about me turning accurately to him as my source of strength. Like he taught Peter and the other disciples, time alone with Jesus is paramount. Our soul needs it. It's where we come alive. We can do nothing, and namely, nothing in ministry and the miraculous apart from Jesus. We see people comb the baptismal waters. We see people's lives change. We see people go from death to life. And, and we got to be a part of that. We got to witness that. That should be celebrated. Did we do that? No. It's like Peter who knows the familiar and he's like, I'm going to die out here. It's alone in Jesus we find our true rest and strength. So what do we do? How do we do it? To conclude, we have to become like Jesus. Just like Samuel, we've got to push away into the silence and be alone with him. Meet him. Anticipate hearing from the Father in times when every other voice just seems so loud. We, we, we got to get away and record everything that he says to us. How many of you remember this thing that was really powerful years ago called journaling? We got to journal. 
We've got to take a not-to-do list into our times where they're quiet, and we've got to write down, yes, I'll pay AT&T. Yes, I'll pay that. Yes, I'll call Sammy. You know, write that down and stop letting your time be robbed with Jesus and the voice of Jesus speaking to you in that time robbed because you keep thinking about what you need to do. You need to think a little bit more about what you know not to do. A little less about what you have to, a little bit more about what you get to. Right now you get to be with Jesus. You need to get pulled aside like lunch with the disciples and you need to let him nurture you and instruct you and you need to write it down. You'll want to come back to it, as we discussed a week ago. You're going to want to meditate on it. This week, I'm going to ask us to be more cognizant of the background noise in our life. How many of you are aware that the first thing you do when you jump in a car is hit the radio? Put on a podcast. How many of you are aware that when you're in your house alone, you turn on the TV just so there's noise in the background so you don't feel so alone? Any, and just me? I don't even remember like watching TV so late in the night that the, the, like, the national anthem happened with the flag and then it just went to white noise. Like I remember falling asleep to that. The noise that's drowning out the noises that are out there that are ignored like the light switch. We need to relieve ourselves intentionally. All the voices vying for that attention need to fall to the background and hear His alone in Scripture from within. Whether we listen to him while we pray, whether we listen to him while we open the scripture, while we listen to his voice as we speak to other people in the vulnerable places. How many of you are hurting? Look, we're coming to a time of response. How many of you have a need? Let me just say it that way. It's far more PC in your life right now. Okay, I want the church to notice the hands that were just raised. How many of you have been honest with another person that you call a brother or sister in the faith. You've been honest about that. Some of us keep trying to couch it all the time. Someone goes, man, I see something in you. It just seems to hurt. I I can tell you're heavy. It's not that big of a deal. But inside you're dying, drowning like Peter on the waves. You try to couch it, try to hide it. You laugh it off as best you can because you don't want to make that burden too big for anyone else because it's nearly impossible for you to carry by yourself. Because it is. It was meant to be given to Jesus. Cast all your cares upon me because I love you. And then recognize me in the church around you and give it to them. Amen? Just me? So here's the thing. Here's what I do. I know that I'm talking about silence, but I'm asking for some response, so that's kind of weird. But here's the, here's the deal. I'm weird. I'm going to ask for the band to come, and I'm going to ask for you to stand. And here's what I'm going to do. If you were brave enough to raise your hand a moment ago and said, I have a need, I want you to act in faith on that need. If you were here and you saw a hand, I want you, if you haven't asked the Lord already this morning, who is it that I need to go to and pray to? We're going to have a time of ministry together. How many of you recognize that we exist together to bear each other's burdens. You know that? I'm going to just tell us plainly what I want to see right now. I want to see us care for brothers and sisters who cannot survive this culture out here around us that's noisy and loud and is chewing us up and spitting us out without taking time right here in the silent to listen for brothers and sisters who need to be loved. You get the opportunity to be Jesus to someone right now. 
okay? Or listen, even more importantly, it's far easier to wash someone's feet than to let your feet be washed. You get the opportunity to let someone be Jesus to you. So in the next few moments, I want you to ask, I expect everyone to move. I do. I expect all of us to move because we are subject to Jesus and we want to be like him. Not just believe on his name, we want to be disciples who will minister in his name and see the miraculous. So, Father, in the next few moments, I pray that your church would be obedient to hear and listen whatever it is you're calling us to do in the next few moments. God, put on our hearts the person that we're to pray for in these next few moments. Put on our minds the person we're to go to to ask for prayer in the next few moments. God, I pray that we would be bold enough and not afraid to share what's, what's hurting us. That you already have authority over as we share it with a brother or sister and say, walk with me, I can't carry it alone. Or let me walk with you because you're not called to carry it alone. Father, we thank you for the life that we have in Jesus because of the sacrifice that he gave in giving himself. Jesus, may we not be so arrogant, so proud, so bold as to not admit our need. And God, to not be there to meet the need of those around us. Right now, I pray this be holy, sacred, silent. And God, speak to us where we're to be used and who you're going to use in our lives right now in this holy moment. In Jesus' name, amen.